Well, last Sunday on Christmas Day, we spent our time together, for those of you that were here, looking together with fresh eyes on the events of that very first Christmas from Matthew's Gospel. As an angel appeared to Joseph in, uh, in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And that passage started off with the words that I used for my title last week, The Birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And then it goes on to tell us what it was like. And it went on to describe there what happened. And we saw that what the angel did would have sounded absolutely crazy to, to Joseph. But it also had profound and life-altering meaning for his people. Why? Because this Jesus that was to be born would save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. And he would do that by being Emmanuel, God with us. So, so thankful that we were able to sing that just now and to be reminded of that great truth. God entered our world as he became a man, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, Jesus was, was qualified, we could say, to die for our sins. God's plan for our salvation was amazingly planned and was not only amazingly planned, but was perfectly and amazingly carried out. So how does that affect us now that Christmas is over? What happens after Jesus is born? Well, it's interesting that those are the very next words in Matthew's Gospel. Look with me at Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born... So, I'm not a very creative guy, so I thought those would be good words for my title this week. After Jesus was born. It's interesting that, that that's how that next passage starts. And as we now move on to our post-Christmas lives and enter into a new year, that next section can actually help us to know what we can expect from our world and how we, who are followers of Jesus, ought to expect of ourselves. How we ought to live as those who are devoted followers of Jesus Christ. The baby is born. Joseph named him Jesus, just like the angel of the Lord told him to. But here's what comes next. So follow along with me as I read the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to worship him, or came to Jerusalem, sorry, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And here's those words I read earlier. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, 
The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Just read up to there. And so this section here has the, the familiar story of the wise men, but also in this section, we'll notice, and hopefully you noticed as we went through this, a contrast of people, two people, or two groups of people, one person and one group, of how they thought about Jesus during those days. A contrast that in many ways is the same as some of the contrasting views of Jesus that we have in our day. So let's take a closer look. Here we not only have the wise men, but we also have King Herod. And the thing that they have in common, before we get into the contrast, is that they're all looking for Jesus Christ. And Herod even says he wants to find Jesus for the same reason that the wise men say that they want to find Jesus. That is to worship him, but we're going to see that their motivations here are totally different. And the ways that they think about Jesus are actually totally opposite. If there's one thing we know from studying the Gospels, it's that Jesus was a very polarizing person. People either ran to him, and usually that's, we call that faith, or they run away from him, which is usually expressed, well, it could just be expressed by indifference, but mostly by hostility, or by resentment, or by outright opposition. And even as a baby, Jesus was a polarizing person. Didn't have to wait till he grew up. Didn't have to wait till he even spoke words. He has, Jesus, just the person of Jesus, has a particular way of, of sorting people and dividing people into one camp or another. So, we have the wise men, and this is actually all we have in the Bible about the wise men, in spite of some creative license in our images of the story and of the nativity scene. Uh, the Bible doesn't actually tell us their names. It doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. You know, there's no we three kings of Orient are. And, and it doesn't even say they were there at the manger, actually. Maybe surprising to some of you. But this account mostly covers the back and forth interaction between them and King Herod. And what jumps out here is the contrast in the search for this Jesus. Herod searched for Jesus. And the wise men searched for Jesus. But what was the motive behind their search for each of them? And, and what does their search tell us about how people think about Jesus? About how people think of this one who was born, the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, before we go back to the wise men, let's look at King Herod. Herod, for us, can be a picture of how people, even in our time, maybe even some of us, can tend sometimes, even unwittingly, unintentionally, can tend to think about Jesus. Herod's introduced there in verse 1 simply as Herod the king. At that time in history, when God chose to send his son to this earth, as Galatians 4 calls it, in the fullness of time, that time, it was in the days of Herod the king. 
And so we have this leader of the province of Judea. Someone might describe our time, you might not like it, as the days of Justin Trudeau. You know, that's the time we're living in. But that's just how it's described here. So we have this leader, and he's not the leader of Israel. He's just the leader of this one province, which is under Roman rule, province of Judea. But he's called a king. Now, in reality, the Jews would never have called Herod their king. He wasn't in the line of King David. He actually wasn't even a full-blooded Jew. He was just given that title by the ruling Romans. Yet, he's known here as Herod the king. But in verse 2, when these wise men show up in Jerusalem, they start asking, where is he who has been born? And notice what they say. Notice what they call Jesus here. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, even those very words would give us a clue as to why Herod would try to eliminate Jesus. He doesn't tell us, who, Matthew doesn't tell us who this question is directed to of the wise men, but we see here that they're on a quest, a search. Where is he? That's what they're asking. Probably just to everyone in general, everyone that they run into. Where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And most people probably didn't even know because it was such an insignificant, really, just another birth in Bethlehem outside, not even in a house or anything, um, just in a stable, in a manger. But their search brought them to Jerusalem. And it brought them there, interestingly, by way of a star, which has now apparently disappeared for a time. Otherwise, they wouldn't even be asking where this king of the Jews is. But when we see Herod's reaction to the wise men's question, there in verse 3, look what it says here. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And in verse 4, you have Herod embarking on his own search. So when he heard that these people were asking this question, it just says he was in trouble. And then he starts searching himself. He calls for the, his religious leaders, or the religious leaders that were around there these days, probably the Pharisees. And he says, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So now both these wise men and Herod are asking, where? Where is he? Where is this Jesus? Only Herod's search starts because he's actually troubled. Because there's a rival king, right? And the wise men's search is because they want to worship him. In verse 8, Herod actually lies to the wise men, saying that he wants to worship the child as well, but we know that that was a farce. It was just him using the wise men to find this other king in order, if you read on from verse 13, to eliminate him. It says to destroy him. Herod wanted to destroy him. So why was Herod the king troubled besides that? And what does this say about how people sometimes see Jesus? Uh, really, I just see two things here. I put it on your sermon notes about Jesus here that made Herod troubled. To Herod, Jesus was an infringement. He was infringing and he was intimidating. First, he was an infringement, or we could say he was being intrusive. He was invasive. If Jesus was indeed the king of the Jews, like the one that the wise men said that they were looking for, then for Herod, it's kind of a natural response for someone that is called the king. He was infringing on Herod's territory. 
To Herod, the Jews already had their king, and he was him, even though they might not have acknowledged it. For Herod, though, everything was going good. We could say he was large and he was in charge, right? He had power, he had authority. But what's all this about another king? I'm in charge around here. And so Herod sets out to find Jesus in order to get rid of Jesus. I wonder if we sometimes can think about Jesus the same way. Do we see Jesus as an infringement on our circle, on our agenda? Is he sometimes just in the way of what we might want to accomplish? Where does Jesus fit into your 2017 plans? Does he even have a place in your reflections and maybe in your resolutions and as you, you know, you just even think of your planning calendar or something. Is there, is there room for Jesus in there? Maybe it would be a good idea to, to, to plan out your year with Jesus in mind. Don't see him as an infringement, but as an indispensable part of your life because that's what you claim that he is, don't you? And when I say Jesus, that would include all sorts of things that, involve, that include Christianity, you know, Christianity starts with the word Christ. So it would include your Bible reading, it would include your devotional life, it would include things like your friends, it would include things like what you watch, it would include how you spend your time, it would include the activities that you decide to embark on in 2017, and we could go on and on. Here's maybe a better way to say it. Why? not actually plan for Jesus to infringe upon your 2017. Infringing, we can sometimes think about as a negative word. And for Herod, it was exactly that. But let me put a spiritual twist on this idea and suggest that Jesus infringing is actually part of the Christmas story. It is the best thing that ever happened. We need to be glad that Jesus infringed upon our world and that Jesus actually infringes upon your life. If he had not intruded into our world, we would have no hope for eternal life. And if God had not sent his Son into our world, we would still be lost in our sin. God had to come to earth as a man, God with us, so that we could get saved, rescued. He was an infringement in every way. Consider these ways. He left the glories of heaven. He left the presence of his heavenly Father, even though he was in the form of God, Philippians 2 tells us. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Came to serve. And even though he was the perfect, pure, sinless God, he came into a sinful, dark world to save all those who would repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Here's another way he infringed. Jesus was the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, and we all plunged into sin with him because of Adam's sin and because we do sin, the second Adam, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. God invaded earth as a man, except this man was without sin. Just like the first Adam's disobedience makes us all guilty, the second Adam's obedience makes us just. 
for those who put their faith in him. For those who put their faith in this intruder, in this infringement into our world, namely Jesus Christ. So we ought not to see Jesus as being infringing in the bad sense of the word. Let's make sure to include Jesus in our lives and give him a place of priority as we go into the new year. And one of the ways to do that might be to pick up one of those Bible reading plans that we've got available and and decide to spend every day at least, it probably takes about 15 minutes maybe to read through those bookmarks. That's spending 15 minutes with Jesus every day. Maybe just be one way. Well, secondly, look back to the story. Herod saw Jesus not only as infringement, but along with that, relatedly intimidating as well. He saw Jesus as a threat. When Herod went to the scribes and the chief priests to ask where Jesus was to be born, they knew that he would come from Bethlehem, according to the prophecy from Micah 5, verse 2 and following. But in that same prophecy, it says more than just where he would come from. It's more than just that he would come from Bethlehem and be born there. It says, For from you shall come a ruler, a ruler who shall shepherd his, my people Israel. Now there's something threatening to our lives and to Herod's life. This baby Jesus was not only an infringement for Herod's power trip, but he was also a threat to Herod's rule. So much so that down in verse 16 it says, Herod became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. This is like a mini holocaust. And in all that region who were two years old and under. Even though Jesus was just a baby, maybe maybe a toddler by this time. Herod knew enough about the fulfillment of prophecy and that it comes true usually, that he was intimidated and threatened by Jesus. And his solution was that he he shouldn't take any chances. And so he's decided to exterminate everyone in Bethlehem that was born around that time, every male child under two. Herod tried to do away with Jesus Christ. Herod tried to do away with Christmas, we could say, long before the skeptics and, and sort of our modern day, you know, let's just call it happy holiday people, who wanted to get rid of Christmas as well. And here again, we should think about ourselves. Does Jesus intimidate us? Do we feel threatened by Jesus? Is, is the very thought of Jesus intimidating? Now, right at the beginning, we would say, no, we're not. Of course we're not. But just like the first point, it depends on how we look at it. If you think about Herod, no, we should not like be, uh, be like Herod, who is threatened by Jesus. So much so that in his mind, he had to get rid of him. But many people today do the same thing. It, it, you know, if only even in their own minds. Jesus comes into the world. That's a fact. It's history. And he must be dealt with. And so people have to do something with him. Whether they know it or not, what someone does with this Jesus, how one thinks of this Jesus even, well, there's a lot at stake. In fact, eternity is at stake. Herod's role in this part of the story ends with deception. And he tells the wise men to go and find the child and let him know that when they find him so that he can worship Jesus too, he says. 
Notice here that Herod doesn't say, go and search diligently for the king of the Jews. He says, go and search diligently for the child. Child. There's no way Herod was going to acknowledge this baby as a king. He absolutely refused to see Jesus for who he is, even though he made out like he wanted to worship him. To Herod, Jesus was a child, a child he saw as a threat to his power and his position. That happens today too. People are confronted with Jesus. You may have even presented Jesus to to, to your friends or to your relatives this Christmas again. You tell them who he is, you, you, you tell them, you sing about the fact that he's a savior, put it in your cards probably, that he can save them from eternal destruction, even though they deserve death and judgment, you tell them that God has sent his son so that they might have the opportunity for forgiveness and for new life forever, yet they refuse to acknowledge who he really is. They refuse to believe. They refuse the very one that can save them. Why? Well, for one thing, it's because Jesus is a king. And if he's a king, then that means, what does that mean for people? If someone's a king, that they have to actually put themselves under him. They have to live like he tells them to live. And that's just too much for people. People generally don't like someone else telling them what to do. We don't like that. They want to be their own king. And so they refuse Jesus. They eliminate themselves of this Jesus in their thoughts and in their lives. And by doing that, they show themselves to be no different than Herod. But there's another sense in which the very presence of Jesus should threaten us. Another sense in which the thought of Jesus should intimidate, should cause us to be afraid. When we, you see, when we rightly see Jesus who... For who he is, we see him as, as holy. We see him as pure. We see him as altogether other than us in terms of our, his holiness. And when we're in the presence of a, of a holy king, it elicits in us a kind of fear, a kind of reverence. But the result of that kind of fear and reverence is that it shouldn't send us to cower away from him, but it should send us to him in worship and in adoration. And that brings us to the wise men. It brings us to the right way to respond to Jesus. I think, and maybe the main reason uh, that Matthew put this story in his gospel account is to show us that the gospel is for all nations and that it's not just for Jews. In fact, in this story, it's the Jews represented by Herod to some extent and the chief priests and scribes who actually give no homage to Jesus. And the Gentiles, uh, represented here by these wise men from all the way in the east, probably from Babylon, have come to worship Christ. Those that were close to Jesus couldn't really see who he was, but those who came from afar understood it full well. The Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for all this time, and yet when, they, when he got there, they end up rejecting him, which then opens the door for God's plan for all the nations, including us, to worship him and to line up under him as our Lord and as our King and as our Sovereign. The wise men, under God's guidance, through a strange star, do exactly that. They see the star, they search for Jesus, 
they see the star again, and then they find Jesus and they worship Jesus. How is the wise men's view of Jesus different from Herod's? While Herod sees Jesus as an infringement and as intimidating, the wise men seek for Jesus, and when they find him, what's their response? They worship him, and they they rejoice first, and they worship him. After they finish talking to Herod, and after they find out that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, this, this star, whatever this is, reappears and leads them right, says, to the house where Jesus is at. Now there's been all sorts of speculation trying to explain the star. I've heard one explanation where there was... Uh, it, it, it's two planets. I think it's Jupiter and, and, and is it Mercury? Anyway, it's one of the other planets. They pass each other, and they, as they do, they send off this great light. Uh, some of it tried to count back the years to Halley's Comet and see if that's what was happening there uh, at that particular time, right over Bethlehem and in, in the whole Middle East. Uh, but the Bible just doesn't tell us. And so the, the best explanation is that this was God's supernatural guidance. It was the glory of God that led them right to this place. Somehow, you just can't naturally explain a star that rests over a house. That just doesn't happen. This is God using nature, nature that he created, in supernatural ways to accomplish his plans. And there was all sorts of stuff happening around the time when Jesus was born. All sorts of, sort of miracles, all sorts of supernatural things, angels appearing, all sorts of things, because this was a, a significant event in history. Of course, strange things would be happening. But the end result is that the wise men find the house. They find the one who has been born of the Jews. Their search ends, and look how they respond. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is one of the great lines of Scripture. Great way to describe a Christian response after the birth of Jesus. You have Matthew here almost following over himself, trying to explain their joy. Uh, This literally reads that they rejoiced with joy, very great. Uh, it, it wasn't enough to say that they rejoiced. He has to add three more words here to show that their joy was to the extreme. It was joy times four. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, they were ecstatic. They were elated. They were over the top joyful. Why? Well, they finally found what they were seeking. God had miraculously led them to the house where Jesus was at. They had found Jesus. They had found the king that they were seeking. And it wasn't Herod, it was Jesus. And they were about to see him. What should we do after Jesus was born in Bethlehem? After the celebrations are over, but as we enter a new year? Well, why not resolve to truly make it the year of the Lord, 2017. For those of us that follow Jesus, let's really follow Jesus. Let's follow him joyfully. Let's follow him exuberantly, giving all our energies to following him. Let's, let's regard our life in Christ as what it is, the best thing that could ever happen to us. What does that look like? 
Well, maybe it means telling other people about the best thing that ever happened to us. Here's just one way for, I know this doesn't cover everyone, it covers some of you. For those of you that are on social media, we always, we always post good things that happen to us. Do you notice that? Or things maybe where we want other people to sympathize with us. Well, as you ponder the new year, ask yourself how you can leverage your social media to tell people about the best thing that ever happened to you. How can you do that? You know, maybe it's just posting a Bible verse every day. I, I don't know. Many of you, you, most of you, are way more creative than me when it comes to that. There's this thing called memes, M-E-M-E. I have never heard that word. That's a new word to me in 2016. But many of you know about all those things and have some really good pictures that have words on them and things like that that are very creative. So do something like that. Leverage that to tell people about Jesus. If you're not into that, find a way to communicate your exceeding great joy in finding Jesus. Do we have exceedingly great joy in God coming in the person of Jesus Christ? And then do we respond in worship like these wise men did? They were very singular in their focus. They wouldn't stop searching until they found the one that God had been leading them to find. They followed the star. They asked where he was. They wouldn't give up. They were very determined. And when they found him, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and they gave him gifts. I pray that we as a church, us as individual believers, would be singular in our focus like that. What are some ways that we can increase our enjoyment of God in 2017? Are there things you would have to maybe add to your daily life or maybe even cut out from your daily life in order to more effectively worship God? Are there things you might have to add to your life or things you might have to cut out from your life in order to more effectively worship God? Take some time in the next day or so to think about that. Maybe talk about it with your spouse or with your family. Well, my hope is that we would then respond with joy in God's magnificent provision of His Son, the one who thankfully infringed into our world and into our lives, the one who is our King and our Lord. And our hope is that our joy would then cause us to worship our Lord and our Savior and our King. I pray that we would rejoice in the glorious gospel of Jesus. I pray that we would increasingly and joyfully fix our eyes in, in this Jesus, who, as Hebrews tells us, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Pray that we might be like those wise men, that we would find Jesus, and that we would bow before him in worship. Let's bow together in prayer. Our loving God, we do thank you for this new year. We pray that you would help us today or maybe in the next couple of days to use this, this changing of our calendar, that we would use this to, to redeem the time, to, to evaluate our priorities, especially as it concerns our walk with you. And still within us, I pray, an increasing desire to get to know you more and to figure out ways in, in the activities and routines that make up our lives to spend time with you, to spend time with your people. Send us 
from here, Lord, with a renewed joy and a renewed desire to worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.